see the California sun beating down. Yeah, see the pretty roses sprout from the ground. You hear voices whisper through the mission walls, louder than all the kids and the parents' cell phone calls. If you stop to listen. Their hearts beating loud. Can't keep those California Indians down. They're tough and resilient and holding their ground. Today's、Can't、program on the American Indian Airways, we're going to feature Catherine Lederberg, director of the Andean Information Network on the situation in Bolivia after the coup, and also Richard Stellar Schroke. Professor of Political Science of Eastern Michigan University, he will speak on the assault on indigenous people in Mexico. This interview was done by the international correspondent, Dr. Fabiana Hurst-Dubin, and your host for this hour, yours truly, Marcus Lopez. Catherine Littleber is the director of the Andean Information Network, the AIN. The Andean Information Network promotes human rights and socio-economic justice in Bolivia, and more human and effective illicit drug control policies. AIN provides information and analysis to NGO colleagues, the media, and international policymakers on developments in Bolivia and the impacts of U.S. government and European policies. Bolivia has essentially been out of the news, and since the time of the U.S.-supported brutal coup that happened against President Evo Morales last November, if we could begin with you giving us a picture of what is going on since that coup took place. It's important to note that since the coup occurred, and two days later. Janine Añez appointed herself as president without a congressional quorum. There were two days after that two brutal, brutal massacres, all of indigenous First Nations people, all with the armed forces and the police shooting directly into crowds at unarmed protesters. We have ten dead in Sacaba and over a hundred other. People with bullet wounds in response to a peaceful protest of the six coca-growing federations from the Cochabamba Tropics, Evo Morales's home organization, and two days after that, the another bloody massacre in Sincata of largely Aymara protesters around the fuel plant in El Alto. There have been no legal consequences. This、uh, violence was carried out based on an executive order signed by Anya's and all of her ministers, guaranteeing illegally guaranteeing impunity for the armed forces. Although the shooting has stopped, intense political persecution has continued. Persecution against social movement leaders, First Nations leaders. Mass public officials, over 600 mass officials, we think, are being prosecuted for political motives, trumped-up causes such as sedition, terrorism. There is a racist, anti-First Nations wave and focus for this government. The Bolivian president erased her tweets, but her tweet said that First Nations rituals and customs were savage. 
she made fun of First Nations peoples for wearing shoes. Other government officials have made similar statements. And it's very, very clear when you talk to people, people who had enjoyed a period, an imperfect period of 14 years of, of Morales' tenure, but a period where there was recognition for basic rights. There was equality before the law. There was the adoption of all 34 languages spoken, First Nations languages in Bolivia as official languages. And the adoption of the Wipala flag of First Nations and indigenous movements as an official flag. One of the first characteristics of this very, very brutal coup, and it's important to remember that the police mutinied against Morales. It turns out they'd later been paid off by the far right, and the Bolivian armed forces requested that he step down. And immediately after that, many police officers ripped the Wipala flag of the First Nations off their uniforms and burnt it. There were continued sustained attacks of Aymara and Quechua women and also First Nations women in the lowlands focused on them because of the way they dress, because of the color of their skin, because of their customs and traditions. So this is not just merely a political movement, but this is a racist focused targeted movement that is an attempt to move back and they even state they're going to move away from the Bolivian plurinational state that was established in the 2009 constitution that talks about Bolivia with a plurality of nations that all have equal weight and move back to the republic, a colonial construct which systematically included First Nations people. And this is where we stand as elections have been postponed uh, there's now a third date. This last date was only recently sanctioned by the Bolivian Congress and no clear indication of whether or not that date will be complied with. Large-scale corruption, the decision of the Anya's government to allow the military generals to promote themselves without congressional control, running roughshod over the separation of powers, and the full support of the Trump administration for this abusive racist behavior. You're muted. What has been the role of the Catholic Church, European Union at this point? I think that's also been extremely disappointing. The Catholic Church, although there are some very progressive members of the church, the institutional stance was very critical of the protesters. They're part of a negotiating committee along with the European Union that have only, as, as a mediation effort, made demands against uh, First Nations protesters and social movements and asked nothing of the government to restrict it. I think the stance of the European Union is especially appalling. The European Union worked for almost two decades in integrated development, hand in hand with the coca growing organizations, with the Aymara and Quechua migrants to these regions, with a process of direct consultation to avoid violence and to guarantee sustainable livelihoods. With Agnes's entrance into power, they immediately backed a right-wing government that's not elected. They approved a five-year drugs control strategy 
that's drug-free and runs roughshod over the European Union's democratic principles and is currently, the European Union is currently renegotiating the next seven years cooperation. They're the largest funders in Bolivia with an illegitimate interim government. And, and this is unexcusable. Catherine, I just wanted to go back for a moment to what you were mentioning about women, indigenous women, because what I remember when we talked a number of years ago is your explanations, which we had several times, about the real incredible strength of the indigenous women's movement, the Quechua Aymara women. What is their, the state of their organization and how are they dealing with these kinds of attacks? Well, the organizations uh, remain quite strong. And the outcry on the part of these organizations has been tremendous. You know, the march in Sakaba and the protest was based on these racist attacks against uh, Quechua and Aymara women. So there's been a very, very strong response, but there's been a very violent response and political charges and persecutions of women leaders that ha have become quite extreme. And the Inter-American Human Rights Commission has called them out on that, as has Harvard University, clearly not a left-wing fringe group. And so the organizations are strong, but they are suffering a great deal of political persecution. And although you have this figurehead, uh, a Bolivian woman president, the policies are very male-oriented and you see a rollback for example, on some of the key gains of the Morales years, such as gender parity uh, in Congress and in every political position where the Bolivian Congress had more representation of women than any other Congress except one African country that had suffered a genocide and there just weren't many men left. So the women's rights, their identity, and especially First Nations women's rights have suffered tremendous setbacks. And I'll send you a lot of the interviews that we've done at the time of the coup and the night of the massacre where people said we understood that from one day to the next, we lost all our rights. Mm -hmm. And to them, we are less than dogs and they've killed us like animals there on the street. And it wasn't a consensus there's over 30 people at different points, you know, two hours after a massacre. But, the, you know, they said, we understand and we know what our rights are and we know that they've been taken away. And that's where we stand right now. Now, Catherine, we know that uh, some of the reports are saying that the violence has been, is now comp compacted by the last year, similar like last year, the violence now. And, but yet, talk about the demonstrations last year in support of Morales and the coup d'etat that happened, and now, which is the reports that some uh, of, of the violence activity is, is uh, manufactured by some of the upper class or some of the OAS or some of the other influences within that country outside of, of that country. How would you see the comparison between people saying that maybe MASH should control their demonstrations now. Is there any comparison and what's the difference? Well, I think it's really important to point out that previously, you know, there were clashes 
in the period where the elections were contested, but there was also a movement, a terrifying movement of paramilitary parastate groups in alliance with the police and the right wing, and that those groups violently attacked protesters and social movements. And there were some events of retaliation, but the great majority of the people killed or with uh, serious industry, you don't see them on the part of the Cochabamba uh, paramilitary motorcycle gang or the Santa Cruz Youth League, which by the way, uses a Nazi salute to give you an idea of kind of this authoritarian fascist nature of, of the movement. So in the period after elections, there was violence on both sides, but the extreme violence and the weight continues to be with the far right. And what you see, for example, in, at this, in, during the massacres is a government assertion that the protesters shot themselves in the back of the head which is, there's absolutely no evidence of that. There's a, a cynicism in that. There is also constant stigmatization of protesters and social movements as narco-terrorists, as narco-guerrillas, especially the coca growers, and a criminalization of social protests. Charges against people who had a phone call with Abel Morales about blockading roads. Mind you that the far right, right blocked roads for three weeks. And so you see the abuse of state apparatus, you see an abuse of these para uh, police forces with extreme violence and backing and, and even public awards from the state. And then you see what, what have been a Bolivian tr tradition on the part of social movements and from the part of First Nations, which are road blockades and blockades that weren't violent, blockades that allowed, contrary to government assertions, oxygen trucks and ambulances to get through, but a, a strategic control in a way that is not extremely violent in the past several weeks to make their opinions heard and have some sort of leverage because the legal system and the security forces are, are, are biased and screwed against them. And there has been part of the international community beyond human rights organizations, no outcry and no complaint and no visible pressure on this authoritarian regime that's really done what, whatever it wished with the Bolivian people. You in tune with American Indian Airways, a conversation with Catherine Lederberg, director of the Andean Information Network, conducted by Dr. Fabiana Hurst-Dubin and Marcus Lopez. Now let us get back to the interview. How are the people who are currently running as potentially MAS presidential candidates, have they, what kinds of positions have they taken publicly about what's going on, both in terms of Agnes, but also in terms of the legitimate social movement protests? Well, you know, Anya was supposed to be an interim president and stay for three weeks, uh, for three months, and she announced her candidacy and is running. The candidates for MAS are Luis Arce Catacora, who's the former finance minister, and David Choquehuanca, the former MAS longtime foreign minister, who's an Aymara politician. 
there is a division, you know, there's this bit, this idea that Abel Morales from exile in Argentina pulls all the strings. There's this very racist view that social movements have no sense of personal efficacy or, or capacity to make decisions or make determinations. And that's very inaccurate. And then, you know, we've talked about this a lot and anyone who understands Bolivian history understands that that's not true. There has been a difference of opinion between the MAS leadership which has urged a negotiated route, and many of the social movements who very much wanted to keep up the road blockades and keep pressure on. In this situation, the MAS leadership has convinced them to withdraw awaiting the elections. But if those elections on October 18th don't happen, then I think the social movements will quickly blockade the country again. It's important to note that the social movements are the majority, that there has not been a direct response or a paralyzation of the country in this nine month period has been a concession and a strategic decision to opt for elections on the part of social movements and shouldn't be misinterpreted as a lack of articulation or a weakness or an inability to carry out social protests. And I, I think that they're consistently underestimated within the current political context. Catherine, we know that within that nation, there's many, there's the indigenous people are, are not monolithic. It's very many groups, like we you said, the, the social justice organizations and people from different communities. Talk about that for our listeners. Um, how many groups are they? because of the fact that this is a very contradictory particular society that on one hand you're talking about the ruling class the right ruling class these pseudo fascist fascist groups and the other side of that you have very poor and that when the country went into this plural pluralistic kind of accepting all and especially first peoples what's the climate now and and are people reorganizing and does this has to has anything to do with the maybe new political leadership on the horizon? Mm -hmm. Well, it's important to note that the Constitution recognizes 34 distinct nations of, four, of First Peoples. And with Abel Morales' decision to run for a fourth term, and that was a questionable decision, I would say that these nations were split and not by nation, but also within nations and within different groups, there was a divergence of opinion. And so it was not, although Morales, in my opinion, did win the election and the OAS did not report on that accurately, there is consensus on groups that often have contradictory interests in terms of land tenure or land holding, there is consensus with the extreme racist anti-First Peoples focus of this government that they have to go. And so in that sense, it's been a unifying force because it is not complicated. They are discriminated against. 34 nations are put in all one basket as inferior beings and not considered to have any rights. And so there's a, the racism 
is unfortunate, but it's really unified the vision against Anya's. Now, strategies of how to do that may vary. And even at this point in time, there are strategies where there are some movements that are pushing for immediate elections or guarantees, and there are others that are pushing directly for Agnes's forced resignation. So there is no consensus except a rejection of the racism, of the repression, of the violence, of the militarization. And it's really important to note that these groups that have returned and Añez represents them, are really a part of the old Bolivian oligarchs, these very, very few who controlled the economy, who exploited others. And so this idea, because under the Morales administration, with many flaws, the economy grew. And so it never was a movement where granting more rights, better living conditions, to the bulk of the population meant any real loss to wealthy people. Wealthy people got wealthier. And these oligarchic groups only lost their ability to repress and dominate and humiliate. And that's what this struggle with this government is about. It's about taking away rights. It's about reestablishing inequality, exploitation, concentration of land in a few hands, privatizing state industries that had fed into um, rural areas and First Nations, education and, and social budgets are now being sold into private hands. So there's an element of revenge and there's an element of punishment that's implicit in this process that makes it incredibly repulsive and repugnant. Then you add COVID virus to all of this. So how does that figure into an already incredibly complex situation? Well, you have a government that doesn't have the skills to govern, that doesn't have the right to govern, that doesn't have a mandate or pure intentions. And what you see is they've used the COVID epidemic. You know, first there are very, very clear cases of spending tens of millions of dollars at the beginning of the epidemic on weaponry and tear gas and anti-riot gear and very little investment in respirators, for example, and huge levels of corruption. So they bought 126 respirators from Spain, but at three times the going price, and those still aren't functioning. So you have, we, we had a two and a half month full militarized quarantine, and the executive decrees during that period uh, criminalized social protest, criminalized art and posts on social media, you still have people in jail for terrorism for being part of progressive WhatsApp groups or tweets on Twitter. Um, so you had really the exploitation of the government of, of the pandemic to increase repression and to further target social movement leaders, accusing them of violating the quarantine and, and mass leaders. And we've seen this over and over and over. And then after that two and a half month period, you saw that the government just stopped doing anything 
or making any effort to even look like they were caring about COVID, threw it into the hands of the local governments, but didn't disperse any of the funds. There have been hundreds of millions of dollars in international assistance that the Bolivian government has received for COVID, and it hasn't made it to the hospitals or the regions. We've had a period of time where there's not available testing. We don't even really know how high the rates are. And for a long time, people in Cochabamba, for example, had to keep the bodies of their loved ones that had died in the house with them for a week because there was no one to pick up the body or no way to cremate it. So there's just an extremely irresponsible uh, stance, a repressive stance, and at the same time, constant argumentation that because of the pandemic, that um, it was impossible to carry out elections. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in this part. And it's important to note that they've also taken out, Bolivia had no pending debt with the International Monetary Fund, and they have taken out multiple loans. And so a, an economy that had the highest growth rate in Latin America before the coup now is hundreds of millions of dollars indebted to the IMF. It's like going back in time. It's like returning to the 1980s. And it's a very, very unsettling thing. Catherine, talk about the uh, pandemic. We read about um, last reports was 91,000 cases, 3,700 deaths, and the crisis, what you said about funeral homes, hospital shortages, oxygen, all that, all that goes with that. Talk to us about the upper, upper other areas in Bolivia about the COVID-19 and the high altitudes. Is that affecting more people? And if so, how? Well, it's in the highest level, you know, there's been publications that high altitudes impede coronavirus. We have not seen that it allows you to avoid it, but we have seen the highest number of cases in Bolivia in the lowlands. So in Santa Cruz, in Beni, moving into the Cochabamba Department, which is a central valley region, and it's not clear if this is because those regions are closer to Brazil, for example, that have higher rates of infection, there is no research here. There's no clarity about why that's happening, what measures, you know, it may be, for example, that Santa Cruz is one of the largest cities with the closest, um, you know, the d densest population. But the problem is we have the numbers that the government gives us, but we don't know if they're true, we don't know if they're accurate, and there's no science. It's very much a, a Trump-like, a-scientific approach to the region. Let's remember that the, the woman came into office with a Bible the size of a mattress, casting out the demons and bringing God back. And she her her public statements talk about fasting and praying in response to the virus. And Catherine, lastly, any last words that you want to leave with the public? I want the public to know what's happening here. It, it's not covered 
for the most part from the international press. I want, I want people to understand the sustained repression, the violence, the racism, the power that these paramilitary groups have. I would like people to hold the US government accountable and to speak out and to support and elevate the voices of the first peoples of Bolivia as they try to defend their rights and, and defend their very survival. You've been listening to an interview by Fabiano Hirsch Dubin and Marcus Lopez with our guest, Catherine Lederber, Director of Andean Information Network. Next, the land of the Zapatistas being attacked. Interview with Richard Stellar Schultz next, here on the American Indian Airwaves. Stay tuned. discussion is about right-wing paramilitary groups attacks indigenous communities reflects the Mexican government political assaults against Indians of Mexico. We're going to have a discussion with Richard Stellar Schultz, professor of Eastern Michigan University of Political Science, with Fabiana Hurst-Dubin and myself, Marcus Lopez. Inform the listeners on what happened on August 22nd, about 11 a.m., about the situation where paramilitary organizations violently attacked the Zapatistas' support bases. Please talk about that. Uh, as you said, on the 22nd of August, armed groups, the uh, paramilitaries of an organization called 
ORCAO, which is an acronym for the Regional Organization of Coffee Growers of Ocosingo. So this is in the region on the edge of the jungle in the state of Chiapas in Mexico. They attacked installations, a coffee warehouse basically, uh, of the, uh, the Zapatistas uh, at a, uh, crossing a crossroads area called Cushulha, and they sacked and looted and burned the, uh, the coffee uh, warehouse. So that's the immediate event. Of course, there's always a backstory. <laughs> um, this didn't happen out of the blue. So the big picture is that since the time of colonization, colonizers and their successor governments have been using divide and conquer strategies to destroy and undermine indigenous communities. And so this is more of the same. This is indigenous people attacking another group of indigenous people, but of course, because they've been manipulated and put up to it. So Orcao, this um, organization that carried out this most recent attack, they date back to uh, 1988, before the 1994 Zapatista uprising. And so there were many different uh, indigenous organizations that were trying to break free from the monopoly control of the long ruling pre-political party. And uh, for a while, uh, Orcao, uh, along with the Zapatistas, were all working for somewhat similar ends of trying to recover lands that had been you know, stolen from them by the wealthy landowners for uh, a long uh, time. But these groups parted company. The Zapatistas uh, wanted autonomy. They wanted uh, fundamental structural change. And groups like Orcao were willing to sell out and uh, sort of take government uh, handouts. So Orcao was uh, at one point expelled from a coalition called UNORCA, the Regional Organization of Peasant, uh, Regional uh, Confederation of Peasant Organizations in uh, 2015, uh, because they had long since sort of degenerated into paramilitary groups, just attacking other indigenous groups and trying to take land. So immediately the immediate events are that this was a dispute over land between indigenous groups, but it really was you know, the government trying to co-opt and buy off non-Zapatista, non-radical groups and use that to divide and, and weaken the autonomous movement of the, uh, the Zapatistas. Uh, this Orcao group had previously launched other attacks. This isn't the first time. Um, there was a major uh, incident in February of this year where Orcao together with another group of paramilitaries called the Chinchulines, along with activists from the Morena political party, the currently ruling political party in Mexico, because all the political parties in Mexico, as the Zapatistas continually point out, uh, are corrupt and opportunistic. So those uh, groups of paramilitaries in February actually kidnapped members of the National Indigenous Congress, the CNI uh, of Mexico. Those members of the National Indigenous Congress were participating in a campaign called the Campaign in Defense of Territory and Mother Earth. And so uh, you know, that campaign, again, was for autonomy and opposing the mega projects. And so this gives us a clue as to what's really behind, uh, what's really at stake here, and why the government is manipulating these divisions between indigenous communities. Uh, so in February, when these paramilitary uh, groups kidnapped members of this indigenous um, council that was uh, defending territory and, and Mother Earth, that campaign was named after Samir Flores, who was a, an environmental indigenous rights uh, activist and journalist who was murdered for opposing one of the mega projects, one of the big projects of global capital, in this case in the state of Morelos, so not even in, uh, in Chiapas. So this comes down to 
uh, autonomous indigenous groups that are trying to oppose the projects of global capital and bought off indigenous groups uh, that are willing to go along with those plans and even assassinate, kidnap, and disrupt other indigenous groups. Now, Richard, why don't you educate the listeners, and especially myself, they talk about the Rainbow Dawn Trading Center, and yes. then you're talking about the autonomous municipalities, uh, Lucio Cabanas, and then the other one was autonomous municipalities, Moses Gandhi. Talk about those, uh, those autonomous uh, areas, and w what does that mean for our listeners? Yes, the Zapatista movement, since it went public in 1994, has been organizing for autonomy, for self-government, self-rule, self-reliance, and rejecting the plans of corrupt governments and uh, global capital. So in 2003, as many of your listeners will remember, the Zapatistas sort of organized their autonomous territories into uh, five different regional forms of government, uh, the caracoles uh, were the centers of regional uh, government. And that movement has continually progressed uh, since then. The caracoles, each of those five regions, is in turn composed of a number of autonomous Zapatista rebel municipalities. So Moises Gandhi was one of those rebel municipalities. Uh, but the, uh, the autonomy movement has continued, and, and most recently, last year, the Zapatistas expanded with the creation of 11 new autonomous regions. They're now calling them CRADES, uh, regional centers for Zapatista uh, rebel resistance. Um, so that included creating uh, new caracoles, new regional centers, as well as new autonomous municipalities. So it's a an autonomy movement in progress, despite the government's constant attempt to portray the Zapatistas as, you know, defeated and irrelevant. And every time the Zapatistas go into a period of silence, as they're in right now, organizing internally rather than making a lot of public uh, pronouncements, the, the government tries to portray that as a sign that somehow um, uh, that it's, it's weak and the autonomy movement has collapsed. And then the Zapatistas surprise everyone by saying, guess what, here we've got all these new regions that we've been organizing. So it's a, a thriving autonomy movement. And in a, a looser sense, the Zapatistas are connected to this national Indigenous Congress, which was, you know, created uh, in part out of the inspiration of the Zapatista example, but most recently, the National Indigenous Congress, the CNI, created an Indigenous Governing Council for Mexico, a kind of parallel government for Mexico. So that's the larger framework of autonomy. And of course, the government doesn't want autonomy because autonomy uh, would include the autonomous right of Indigenous communities to reject the mega so-called development projects of uh, global capital. And so that's what this is really about, even though the immediate manifestation of these local conflicts. Rich, in this attack, one of, the, one of the things that they're attacking is the way that the Zapatistas deal with land, yes. communally held lands versus privately held lands. And at the, this is a really, really important point, I think, because the Zapatistas, it's at the base of their ability to have autonomy and build autonomy is sharing these lands. And they've always refused to create individual plots, which is a very much a fundamental part of capitalism and that approach to land. And the Orcao, or the Coffee Growers Association, is angry about that because they want to be able to have individual parcels 
that they can sell off and make money. So in a lot of ways, the land issue, which has always been fundamental for indigenous peoples throughout the hemisphere, not just in Chiapas, is an issue here too. Yes, that's an important point. The uh, neoliberal or so-called free market project has been all about reversing the historic agrarian reform of the Mexican Revolution and trying to privately parcel and sell off uh, land. Uh, so since 1991, the Mexican state has been reversing the agrarian reform of the Mexican Revolution and setting into motion the destruction of the ejidos, the collective property units, and putting into uh, uh, practice the individual parceling and privatization of land. So when the Zapatista Rebellion occurred, the Zapatistas said, no, uh, we're going to launch our own, essentially a de facto agrarian reform, but it's not going to be like the government's uh, plan. It's going to be about communal land ownership and use. So in the Zapatista territories, lands are available for communal use. So families have individual plots that they can use, but they're also each community works the land communally. Uh, so Orcao sort of hitched onto the Zapatista land recovery process and said, okay, thank you very much for recovering this land, but now we want to take it and sell it off to the highest bidder. And the government was happy to accommodate them and use that again as part of their divide and conquer uh, strategy. So this is uh, an old, you know, an old colonial practice, but also the modern version of it is what's sometimes called low intensity conflict or low intensity warfare. Rich, if you could also give a feel, I mean, I spent a little time in the Ocosingo area, not a lot. Mm -hmm. And our listeners may have no idea really even where that is in Chiapas, if they understand uh -huh. where Chiapas is, which is mm -hmm. obviously the southernmost state close to the border with Guatemala in Mexico. Mm -hmm. But in the Ocosingo area, I remember I was told ahead of time to not have a conversation while I was eating lunch in one of the restaurants in town because it could be overheard by people who are fundamentally, maybe we could, the closest analogy would be like being in Trump land. Um, Ocosingo is, has a strange feel. Um, it is a small city in the uh, eastern part of Chiapas to the east of San Cristobal. Some of your um, listeners may uh, be familiar with San Cristobal, more of a tourist town. And Ocosingo has a Wild West feel. Uh, so it's, you know, there's cattle ranchers and coffee growers in the, uh, the region, and they come into Ocosingo to get veterinary supplies and barbed wire fencing materials and things like that. So it's full of, it's got a sort of cowboy feel to it. And, you know, politically, there are all different factions and forces uh, who are sort of operating and, and based in uh, the, the town of Ocosingo. So paramilitaries have, you know, often, you know, camped out in, in Ocosingo. And this particular autonomous municipality that's, um, you know, includes uh, the Ocosingo uh, area and includes these coffee warehouse and, uh, you know, fair trade uh, facilities and so forth that the uh, that Orcal attacked, that particular installation sits right astride the, the road to Ocosingo in this crossroads uh, called Kushulha. So it's, you know, it would be easy for, uh, um, you know, opposition for uh, anti-Sapatista groups like Orcao to, uh, you know, get there and sort of get in and out. In various other points in the conflict, Ocosingo was uh, the site of major battles when the Zapatista uprising occurred in 
1994, and the, the Zapatistas were sort of retreating back to the jungle as the Mexican military offensive came in to push them back. And the Mexican Federal Army surrounded a group of Zapatistas in the Ocosingo marketplace, and there was a massacre. They captured and executed uh, many um, Zapatistas. And for years, the, Zapati the, uh, the Mexican Federal Army remained camped out in, in, um, in the town of Ocosingo. So it felt very much under military occupation. Finally, when the Mexican government realized that that looked bad to have military occupation in such a public place, they essentially let the paramilitaries do the dirty work and the Mexican Federal Army sort of retreated from occupying the, uh, the town. But it's still uh, a site of considerable tension and a lot of the tension is over, you know, again, these manipulated conflicts between the right-wing paramilitaries and the, uh, the Zapatistas. You're listening to the American Indian Airways. We're speaking with Richard Stellar Schultz, professor of Eastern Michigan University of Political Science, about the recent attacks of Indian peoples within the state of Chiapas, and also the right-wing paramilitary group that reflects the Mexican government political assaults against Indians of Mexico. Now, let's continue the discussion. Now, Richard, want to talk about the Indigenous Governing Council, National Indigenous Council of Mexico. They stated that the government and variety from above stopped privatizing Mother Earth and the war from above and especially the, they were talking about the speaking out against a war of extermination. Give us a little background. What do they mean from a war from above? And are they imposing, like we talked about earlier, the, you said a mega projects of death. Please briefly tell our listeners what that means. Sure. The current government in Mexico, which is misleadingly labeled by the corporate media as a leftist or left-leaning or left-of-center government, is really a populist government, which means they go with whatever way the wind will blow to try to disguise their intentions, and those intentions are to continue the global corporate agenda, the neoliberal agenda, which is, uh, you know, kind of free reign for global corporations to invest in these uh, mega projects. So among the mega projects that the AMLO, the Lopez Obrador administration, has been pushing quite aggressively, and I do mean aggressively, are their signature project, the so-called Mayan train, which I think we've talked about on this program before. It's a, an insulting label because it's not a Mayan train. Um, and the Mayan communities all along the route have been organizing against the, uh, the project, but it's a major tourist project that would connect some of the uh, ancient Mayan ruins of the Yucatan Peninsula uh, with Palenque in the state of, uh, of Chiapas. So that's one of the projects. Another major project is the so-called Trans-Isthmian Corridor and the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in the state of Oaxaca, just to the west of Chiapas, is, would be the site of that. And that includes everything from energy projects, um, windmill uh, farms, to uh, high-speed train and deep water ports 
uh, it would totally transform this area, which has one of the larger concentrations of indigenous people um, in uh, Mexico. So it would transform it into this sort of infrastructure haven for global capital to be able to move goods between the Pacific and the Atlantic and to take advantage of the, the energy. But this would have a devastating effect on the lives and livelihoods and uh, community traditions of the indigenous communities on the Isthmus. And then a third major project is the one that Samir Flores was killed trying to pose this, uh, this project I mentioned before, the Morelos Integral Project, which would include uh, a, a, some 93 miles of gas pipelines and thermoelectric projects and so forth in the state of, of Morelos. But those are just a few of the major examples of how the current administration in Mexico is continuing what the old ruling pre did, which was to open up the country to unrestricted or virtually unrestricted foreign investment. And they do this by uh, manipulating and faking environmental impact statements, manipulating and faking indigenous consultations, which are required under international law. Mexico is a signatory uh, to Convention 169 of the International Labor Organization that guarantees indigenous communities the rights to free prior and informed consultation before an, uh, a project can be installed in their communities. And the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples of the United Nations in 2007 reinforces that international obligation. But the uh, current administration in Mexico is making a mockery of that with sham consultations and looking the other way when uh, indigenous rights activists are assassinated with total impunity. Richard, is that why, why they're saying the, this attack is a war from above? You didn't, you didn't comment on that. Yes. How should we interpret that? Yeah, I think that you're right. That's the, um, the, the interpretation. Uh, so we can get lost in the weeds of local conflicts between indigenous groups and lose sight of the fact that this is really about the powerful from above trying to manipulate those local conflicts for their purposes of uh, global profit in the you know, global capitalist economy. One of the things that we've seen, even though it's at a smaller scale, it involves Ocosingo and involves a mega project that, well, maybe it's not mega, but it's in that ballpark, that has been going on for years and failed under various administrations in Mexico is a highway from San Cristobal to Palenque that would go through, I believe, the Ocosingo area as well. So it's a road that, you know, was supposed to have been built and the only reason it hasn't been built is because of Zapatista community resistance over time. Yes, the Zapatistas have been an example of resistance and of insisting on the principle of autonomy. And it's not only Zapatistas, but other indigenous communities who may be in part inspired by the Zapatista movement who are reclaiming their rights to be consulted and to autonomously determine their future and their uh, way of life. Uh, so that stretch of road uh, from San Cristobal to Palenque would be part of this larger scheme of what the government describes as uh, development or tourist development, or sometimes they shamelessly describe it as eco-tourism. Uh, uh, well, there's 
nothing ecological about it. Uh, the indigenous communities who have been protecting the environment for thousands of years there um, are never consulted when the government comes in and says, well, here's a profitable opportunity for tourism and we'll just stick an eco prefix on it. So yeah, the, the Mayan train and the San Cristobal Palenque Highway are all part of the same uh, logic. And indigenous people are rightfully rejecting those uh, projects claiming their rights to decide and saying, you know, uh, we are not the objects of the tourist gaze. Um, you know, you can't sell us as, um, you know, as tourism, as tourist objects. We are people and we're living here and we've been living here in harmony with the environment uh, for, you know, long before governments came along and tried to sell off the land, the territory, and the people uh, to the highest bidder. And finally, Richard, when the Indigenous Governing Council of the National Indigenous Council talked about we should speak out against a war extermination, for us in North America, and when we're going to the protest and this rebellion in North America, Black Lives Matter, about the uh, uh, different nations speaking out, Indigenous nations speaking out in Canada, in the United States about their rights, when we speak about the, the against the war or extermination, what is that to us in North America? What is it, do you think that means? I think that those examples that you cited here are definitely relevant. You know, Standing Rock and the other protests of indigenous people in the United States, um, as well as the Black Lives Matter movement, are examples of resistance against being erased. Uh, someone once said in the context of the the Black Lives Matter movement and you know, the post-George Floyd killing that, you know, racism isn't new, structural systemic racism in the United States, it's just being filmed. So, you know, not filming it, not talking about it, pretending that racism isn't built into the fabric of the society, that is extermination. That is uh, the, the war of oblivion. Uh, erasing the existence, the identity, and the resistance struggles of indigenous Afro-descendant people in the Americas. And that's what the Indigenous Council of Government of Mexico has been uh, fighting against. And that's what indigenous and Afro-descendant and, and other peoples uh, in the Americas have been fighting against for centuries. Now, Fabiana, did I miss anything? Do you want to ask, since we have the opportunity of talking to Richard here, any last questions, Fabiana, that you can think that well, we can send to our listeners over this wonderful discussion? I just wanted to raise one more thing about, which is related to what we've been talking about, but is has to do with the Zapatistas as an example of what's possible that is also cited in this short statement of the Congreso Nacional Indígena, the Indigenous National Council, about the attack that just happened last Saturday. And they say in the last two sentences, we call on our compañeros of the networks of support, resistance, and rebellion to speak out and mobilize against the war of extermination, which is dangerously intensifying against our brothers and sisters of the Zapatistas communities who have taught us to never stop sowing rebellion and hope. The moment of silence is over. Our children dance.
souls of the dead Rehearsing their dreams on the front lines Of the war inside their heads They sleep caged against their fear They try not to become what they've endured Wearing their souls on the thread The moment of silence is over And this concludes our show for today We'd like to thank Catherine Lederber, Director of the Andean Information Network, Professor Richard Stellar Shope of the Eastern Michigan University, also our music guest, Aragon Star, Zabatista's Anthem, and Blackfire. Thank you for our listeners for your contributions. For the American Indian Airways Collective, Larry Smith, Dr. Fabiana Hurst-Dubin, and your host for today, Marcus Lopez, we bid you a good evening. Silence is over.